You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Sometimes when you're in an omnipotent position, you can go left or right at a crossroads. The way I go is benevolent despot route. Fast forward 30 odd years and today, those people that ignore the digital applications that offer sports such an exciting future will be out of business. So if you've got a baby monster and you'd like to own a big monster, you need to feed it. And social media feeds it. Hi there. My guest this time is Barry Hearn. He's been running matchroom sports since the mid-70s, involved in boxing, snooker, completely redeveloped darts, and his son Eddie is now guiding the career of Anthony Joshua and a number of very high-profile boxers. Barry is one of the grandees of British sport, a salesman, an accountant, a boy from a council estate with a chip on his shoulder. That's what he'll say. He's also a very clever man, a survivor, a hard worker, and displays lots of the attributes and common sense that really should be valued in today's market. This is one of the best interviews I think I've done on this podcast. Barry is very open, honest, tells a good tale as well. I think you'll enjoy this one. Here's Barry. My name is Barry Hearn. I am the chairman of Matchroom Sport. Uh, I'm not going to tell you we are the best sports promoters in the world, but as Brian Clough once said, we're in a group of one. <laughs> you started Matchroom, put on your first show, 1975. You've recently turned 70. What role do you play in the company now? I, I sort of float over 13 different sports. I'm passionate about the 13 sports we promote, but honest enough to know that people get older and people are better. So I have put together a series of teams that operate in each area and I advise, consult, float, occasionally contribute but mainly coordinate our activities which produce 630 event days a year and around 40,000 hours of global television what makes a good event passion people excellence logistics are something sometimes underrated but something that you have to take into account to make the day and the event work well and often they are not necessarily understood by most. The devil is in the detail of every event and you have to live it 24-7. It's not necessarily as glamorous as it may sound, but the price of a pint of beer can affect your crowd at a darts match and the price of a ringside ticket can affect the crowd. You have to look to the customer experience is paramount. Everything revolves around the fan and the customer experience. It creates the atmosphere without which TV doesn't work. With it, the TV doesn't work, the sponsors don't get the ratings, and the prize money levels never accelerate to the level you want to take them to, to give the perception of an energizing event. You've done so many things. You've done snooker, boxing, fishing, etc., but there was a quote about the darts. You said, of all the sports I've done, I'm going to take credit for the darts, but I've got no idea how it really happened. It must have been more planned than that. Of course, of course. But my perception, of my personal perception, is more of a barrel boy, salesman that just goes for it, um, entrepreneurial, whiz kid. The actual truth is, of course, far from that. I am a boring, chartered accountant that takes into 
a huge amount of data, detail, research before I make any move into anything. Everything is analyzed and analytical. But that's not so attractive to say, isn't it? People don't really want to hear that. They want to hear, yeah, I just saw this and I thought, why not darts? Actually, what I saw was a sport with very few barriers to entry. I saw a sport with a changing demographic. Uh, I saw a sport coming out of the pubs, coming out of a volume audience. I saw an awful lot of satellite dishes on the homes of people that were playing and the homes of people that were watching and thought, given the promotion taken to a wider audience, why can't this be working man's golf? And that's why I set my target on and most of the uh, most of the enlargement of the world of darts has been built on pretty well a golf philosophy of Q school, developmental tour, challenge tour for those that didn't get their tour card, escalating prize money for those that did, the establishment of 128 global elite players, and then through World Series in particular, the establishment of television applications around the world following a sport that everyone has played at some stage, a sport played by ordinary people with extraordinary ability. And then putting a little bit of stardust about creating personalities that play with that sport and you're off and running. Sounds very easy in a 30 second summary. It took me 40 years to get it right. My first job was as a sports reporter for the Aldershot News. Frimley Green was right Mm. in our backyard. I went to the BDO darts. Now, what you did with PDC mm. was what we would now call disruption. You made an omelette by cracking a few eggs here. Yeah, yeah, more than that. I think we smashed them to bits, but it was a silly situation. I mean, it, sometimes when you're in an omnipotent position, you can go left or right at a crossroads. The way I go is benevolent despot route, which means that I have to think about the players. I have to think about other people. I mustn't just be looking at myself, my own profits, or my own ego. Uh, Frimley Green, the BDO, went the wrong way. They ignored the views of the players, the paying public, the television people, the sponsorship people, and took the more autocratic view that they owned the sport and that they were the reason it existed. That, that's never the case. There will always be a Barry Hearn or someone knocking at the door, whether it's in cricket with Kerry Packer or whether it's other sports where people have come in and seen a different vision. My vision was to expand the game and create an industry behind it, not in front of it. And I can remember quite clearly when I first took over, I wrote to the BDO and said, look, I'm not party to the dispute that happened a few years ago. Shall we meet and discuss? because I believe any form of discussion is better than any conflict. And I had a one-line letter from the man in charge which said, I see no point for a meeting. And I wrote back and said, I will now fuck you. Um, Unfortunately for them, uh, I made them an offer a few years ago, a couple of million quid just to buy them out. Actually, it was two million pounds just to stop them calling their event the World Championships because it wasn't the World Championships and it was disruptive. Uh, they turned me down and I'm so pleased they did because it was a total waste of money. And they have now become what they were in the first place and should have remained, which is the amateur governing body. And and they do some good work amongst super leagues and various grassroots. 
but they're not a professional organisation. They don't have the infrastructure that we have to cope with today's challenges, changing climates. And our prize money's gone from 500,000 to 15 million, and theirs has stayed at 500,000. We were roughly the same size 10 or 11 years ago. You talked about building personalities in darts. You've done the same thing with boxers mm. throughout uh, your career. If you'd had social media back in the day, mm. how advantageous would it have been and what would you have done? Well, it's difficult. It's always difficult to look back in the day because the world's a changing place and we're very economically led by finance. And Today is a day... The last few years have been the day of social media where it's reached that millennial audience that are looking for something different and looking to get their fix, their sporting fix in different ways on different, whether it's mobile, whether it's tablet. They're not looking at sitting on the settee as we all did with mum and dad watching 15 minutes on grandstand. You know, the, the world has changed. People have accepted that sport is a fundamental reason why people enjoy their life, whether it's a participation or a spectator. Uh, and therefore, there is a commercial opportunity to be gained by showing top-class sports content. And that sports content is predominantly led by soccer, of course, football. Uh, nothing gets anywhere near it. Nothing gets anywhere near it. But there is an opportunity below that to create and develop various sports. And I've specialised in mainly niche sports over the last 40 years and been reasonably successful in taking them to a wider audience and giving people an opportunity to earn their living and change their life through that sport and giving me an opportunity to make, you know, what's a reasonable amount of money in terms of a business. So everyone's a winner, but it's a balancing act, you know. But social media has been the most fundamental part of the change that I've seen in 40 years. The change I saw coming nearly 40 years ago was sports cable and satellite services which didn't exist I probably moved a couple of years too early because I recognised there was a shortage of sports programming so I started to create events nearly went bust on the back of it because I, I was a couple of years too early but stayed in there as normal because I'm fairly relentless as a, as a personality and I don't I don't like to come second so Eventually, with Sky, Eurosport, B Sky B, Screen Sport, various other operations around the world, we got it right. Fast forward 30 odd years, and today, those people that ignore the digital applications that offer sport such an exciting future will be out of business. So it's a balancing act between linear and, and digital. Uh, and I think both have got a role, but the pay model role inevitably it's involved in digital has got far more upside than the traditional linear coverage. It also strikes me you invested in content, homegrown content. Mm. I mean, there's, we're sitting in your headquarters here and there's been Avid Suites in here, six Avid Suites in here for mm. how long, 10 years? Yeah, at least 10 years. Okay, yeah. and you've been creating stats, I was reading 40,000 hours of broadcast content comes out of here and yeah. goes around the world. You were investing in your own content hub before others of your ilk were doing the yeah. same thing. We, we had a, I always had an interesting conversation every year at Wimbledon with Mark McCormack, who's obviously the leader of our industry that began sports management effectively. 
And he used to take the mick out of me all the time about what are you doing wasting your time with these little sports? You know, I've got the US Open tennis, I've got the US Open golf, I've got Wimbledon, I've got blah, blah, blah. come and work for me and we can make some money and have some fun. And I used to say to, you know, I said to him, Mark, you know, the difference between us is you rent your company and I own it. So, you, yes, you have some massive events, but they're not yours. I have some small events, but they're mine. And it's a bit like bringing up your kids, you know. You can go around to see other people's kids and hand them back, or they leave you, and they're not your kids. Whereas with me, these are my children. So Fishermania last Saturday was 25 years old. It's all around the world, and I take some credit for it, and I enjoy the fact that we've got it. But ownership is key. Content is key. Content's always been key, but ownership is the biggest thing because you can then have the freedom to invest in your own children, your own ownership. And if it can, some kids go bad, some kids go good, you know, some events go bad. So once you've got that, at least it does give you the desire to get behind it because it's yours. And I think that's probably been the biggest driving factor for our business of, I mean, events like the Moscone Cup, which is the Ryder Cup of Paul. I mean, again, I wanted to own the Ryder Cup. I like the Ryder Cup, but I couldn't buy it. I couldn't own it. So I turned to a sport that I had more control over, Nine Ball Paul, spoke to Willie Moscone's widow, said, I'm going to keep your husband's name forever in the public domain. She was delighted. And the Moscone Cup for 10 years lost a shed load of money, and, but we kept with it. And now it's a very, very successful event. So it doesn't happen overnight. Things happen quicker today because of social media, because you can reach your key niche audience. The days of saying to a sponsor, I'll get you 100 million TV audience, don't really apply in as far as I can get you a targeted audience that actually might be interested in your product, which social media does. So from a pur from a, a purposes of exploitation, social media really brings something to the table. Most sponsors today are less interested in their linear broadcast demographic as they are in their digital social media demographic because they know it's hitting the right customer at the right time and taking the right message with it. So one has to adjust the techniques of how you're promoting, but the basic product still comes down to how good an event it is. For me, we invest in our own ideas. We don't buy other people's. You've also said fun is more important than money. Mm. So if you left money on the table in, to, in order to have ownership and just, just to have fun. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, a lot of money on the table. I mean, I can say that now from a position of strength. I'm not so sure I would have said it in the sort of late 80s when I was struggling. You're still an accountant <laughs> after all. <laughs> I'm having a lot more fun when you own it and it makes a shed load of money. But the point, the real issue is, and especially this gets more relevant as you get older, is that there's 24 hours in a day, 365 days in a year. So I am my own worst enemy in terms of my benevolent despot images. I take it very seriously and I take my work very seriously, which means I commit a huge amount of my personal time to it. Uh, in, and other people would describe me as a sad bastard, but that's just the way I am. I'm a control freak and I like to be involved and I like to be creative as much as I can. 
But there is a limit to what you can take on. So I have turned down dozens of opportunities to either own other sports or control other events simply because I don't have the passion for that particular sport. Uh, and no disrespect, but I, I'm not a motor fan, motorsport fan at all. I, I, I find Formula One dreadfully boring. I'm, I'm not really a tennis fan. I will go once a year because my wife plays tennis and I will watch Wimbledon and I don't find it particularly exciting. And that's not to criticise fabulous athletes and, and experienced drivers. It just doesn't turn me on. And I have to be honest with myself, how much time have I got? Whereas I watch five hours fishing a fisher mania and think it's one of the best things I've seen on television. So I'm biased, but I've left a lot of money on the table if money was going to be my main criteria. When you get to a certain level in life, money is not your main criteria. Enjoyment is your main criteria, especially as you get older and you don't know how many more years you've got. So yes, fun is important. And the whole of the image of matchroom sport is I would only employ people that feel warmth towards the sports they're working on because otherwise it can't be invented it, it, it has to be real was Leighton Orient an emotional decision? totally totally emotional crazy crazy decision a, a, a battle you can't win but I remember they came to see me what 25 years ago now and said that the club's going to go bust and would you take an interest? And I, I looked at the figures as an accountant and said, you must be mad. And they said, yeah, very cleverly, they said, just come to the ground. And I, of course, I'd been occasionally, but I was there when I was 11. It was my club. And all I could think about was I used to stand over there and I'm like, my heart, my wallet merged for a, a nanosecond. And the next thing you know, I own the club, including a few million pounds worth of debts. And and I, 19 years, I don't regret a day of it, but it was a, a, a battle I couldn't win. You know, I, I nearly, nearly got out of jail. 2 0 up in the playoff finals to go to the championship would have been the most wonderful way to exit. It didn't happen. But I have, of my top 12 sporting memories, probably three or four of them are football at Lake Norrent. So in the bigger picture, it gave me some fun. It also gave me a huge amount of frustration huge amount of aggravation cost me a load of money and I don't really care going back to social media Eiffel TV seemingly have a room at English <laughs> building they hear a lot they hear so often speaking to your son Eddie who's in charge of the boxing of course what do you make of the proliferation of YouTube channels and the way that they're disrupting the media and they're mm. put, they're thrown a, a grenade in with the boxing media because they're getting exclusive they're coming to Eddie Hearn and, fi and finding out that Joshua might fight XX and X it might mm -hmm. be on that date previously that was information we didn't get it's yeah. changing well I think the whole media world has changed and I think the, you know you can't ignore why I'm talking to you today you can't ignore podcasts you can't ignore the fact that you're reaching your target audience and when you look at the number of hits on those programs you can see that they're being successful for a reason. And the reason is that these people have not been serviced properly in the past. And the new dynamics of social media allow that servicing to take place at a level that we've not seen before. So whether it's IFTV or Seconds Out, there's a, there's a host of them. They are performing a very vital role for the sport, in my view. I think because of the numbers, they're actually making a living out of it. So I welcome them. I think they add 
the dimension that we've not seen before. They sell tickets for me. They attract viewers to for me. They put the word out in a declining old media space market where you can't get so much into a tabloid newspaper as you used to, which is predominantly soccer, football, a little bit of cricket thrown in, a bit of rugby sometimes. Um, but the really successful sports of boxing and darts are the two that I would pick out as being, wow, where did they come from sort of thing. Boxing's been around for a long time. Darts, not so really long time in the bigger picture. So much of that's been built on social media because there was a gap in the market that these guys and you are, are taking advantage of. Do promoters have to balance their exposure in any way to protect their brand or is all publicity good publicity? Basically, all publicity is good publicity. I mean, we all like to say balance exposure. I'm not sure what that really means. I mean, basically, you want don't to... Don't do too much and don't be in a bad position. You can never do too much. I mean, this is the argument of most unsuccessful promoters is, oh, you know, don't want to flood the market. It's absolute rubbish. I mean, you want to flood it. You want it to be on... Every, I'd like every single newspaper to talk nothing at all about other than boxing when I've got a show and darts when I've got a show. No, no, you, you cannot do enough if there's a demand. Everything in life is about supply and demand. And that goes through the economic chain till it works out to making money or losing money. Supply and demand means that you are putting on an event that appeals to a lot of people, both live spectators and TV ratings. The obvious attraction to sponsors follows. The globalisation is a lot easier. But without social media following, without non-stop the drip feed of information, media, throughout every hour of the day cannot be ignored because that is what your monster is feeding on. So if you've got a baby monster and you'd like to own a big monster, you need to feed it and social media feeds it. I've seen, I've read that you look at four or five ideas each year mm. and every two years or so, one of those will come to fruition. Mm. What's the thinking process? What criteria do you use? The criteria is, can we add something to the sport in a way that will make us a profit and reward the participants at a level which they've not had before? We are, we are ego-driven in as far as we want to be successful. And we want everyone to clap us on the back and say, what a wonderful job. And we want to make money. So you put those three things into the pot. So we would look at events from the purchase. The start-off point would be, where are they now? And have we got something we can contribute that can put them in a better position? If the answer to that question is yes, you move on to square two. And square two says, right, realistically, no bullshit. What can we do which will increase commercial appeal of this business to such an extent that it will make us potentially significant return on an investment of how much? So then you start getting into your accountancy mode and you say, if I invest this into this, how many tickets will I sell? What type of overseas TV will I get? What type of domestic? What broadcast? So there's a thousand one questions and there's a thousand and one obstacles because most of them do not pass the litmus test of being an event that is worthy of our attention and where we feel confident enough we can bring enough to the table to justify it to all parties. 
Host Broadcaster inevitably is the first port of call. And there we've been blessed to have Sky Sports supporting a serious number of new ventures, some of which have survived and some of which haven't. You know, I remember the White Gold Cup clay pigeon shooting suffered terribly from fire gun abuse and things like that. The Premier League bowls, because we tried to get into an older market, didn't really work. And this goes on, and there's a couple now which we are reviewing. Are we doing this the right way? We will eventually, after two or three years, generally sit back and say, right, as in any relationship, whether it's a husband and wife or a father and son, we will say, how's it going for you, dear, to a sport? And we will look at what we've achieved in terms of changing the sport, hopefully financially and from an exposure viewpoint. And we will look and say, has it added to our life? Now, if you're passionate about sport, it gets a lot longer time frame to succeed. Um, you have to have some passion to get involved at the beginning, but there's levels of passion. So, snooker, for example, because we go back to 75, we would always give a little bit longer to get it right out of a feeling of debt. Um, other sports, Currently, we're looking at basketball and netball, for example. We've done one event, we're going to do another one, and we're monitoring. Uh, we're not making a long-term commitment in our head, but we're certainly making a commitment of a few years because we need to see whether we're, whether we're being successful. Are we good for it? Looking at rugby league at the moment, certainly. There's a, there's a sport which is a big sport already. Has it peaked? Is it going backwards? Can it go forwards? What's it missing? What's the ingredients? We're trying to make a cake that tastes like the best cake you've ever had. So we have to put the best ingredients in. And then we have to make sure that we cook it for the right amount of time because it's got to taste special. If it's a matching event, I want people to be able to identify every event. Oh, this is obviously Barry Hearn or this is Eddie Hearn. When you go boxing, you know an Eddie Hearn show. It's altogether different from anybody else. And it's publicised differently and it's financed differently. And it's profitable, generally, but not necessarily. You don't cut the cloth to ensure a profit. You spend what you have to spend to make a great event. Great events make profit. But sometimes there's a few rocky rides along the way. That's the job of a promoter. That's why we do so many hundreds of events. So the ingredient there is give it a chance if you feel anything towards it at all. So I don't particularly, as I said, like tennis. I will never look at a tennis event. I don't have the passion. I don't have the time. I probably couldn't do much with it. And I'm realistic about that. Whereas I will look at gymnastics and say, I like the event. I like the fact that it's a tremendous standard of athletic ability because it's something so different. I'm saddened that the people that do it don't change their life. They don't make enough money for the effort they put in. I think we can make a difference. So there we'll give that a go and superstars of gymnastics will be at the O2 next March. And that may be the first step. But one step at a time, as Mao Zedong said, every journey starts with a first step. You've been talking about esports for 18 months or so, yeah. but you haven't done the thing yet. No. So where's your thought process on that? I, I, I like esports. I think it has got some future. I have a great deal of difficulty working the monetization out. I see a lot of pluses. I see a younger demographic. I see a digital era 
millennial, if you like. Uh, I see it shocks a lot of people that there can be crowds watching two guys on a gaming machine, effectively. I think it shocks a lot of people that some of these guys are earning millions of dollars a year in sponsorship from games broadcasters. But the crossover between linear and digital, which is so easy on most sports, is quite difficult on esports. Um, linear broadcasters, traditional broadcasters, have been very slow to actually take on board the benefits of e-gaming. And e-gaming, on the other hand, most of the big operators have made a point of saying we don't want linear broadcast because that's not our target audience. That's a mistake. I mean, basically, you want all audience if you can get it, but appreciate where your real audience comes from, which is the younger market. We are still in discussions with a number of people, and I believe that there is a digital application, not a linear necessarily, but I think there's a potential pay application on e-gaming that gets me interested. And I'm probably 12 months away from thinking, okay, what move? But if I can put together the right broadcast involvement that can monetize and take away my last out, I'm, not, I'm in no doubt whatsoever about the volume of people interested in doing it, the age group and the demographic of those people is appealing. The doubt in my mind was always, okay, that ticks all that box. We can stage massive events. We can do, that ticks that box. The, the last box is, can I make money out of this? Because I'm not here to waste my time. And I might be getting closer on that one. And if I do, then expect to move in the next 12 months. Have you ever thought about your own match from OTT service or TV app because you're creating all this content you own these events and you're seeing the zones and the and the 11 sports of this world creating a business out of well the one thing that's important in life we all think we're special no one has a bigger ego than me that thinks I'm super special but in the cold light of day the most the one person you must always tell the truth to is yourself so that comes to understanding your strengths and your weaknesses and not to think that you're God in the TV business. We are a service company. We service the rights of broadcasters. We service the rights of sportsmen and women. We are not necessarily the all-encumbering all part of the whole world of television and media. As an accountant, I don't want also to take the financial risk that 40 years of acquiring assets has given me to risk on a particular project. I'd rather be taking a very small slice of a humongous sized cake than own the cake. Every interview I've ever read about you, you always mention I'm an accountant, I'm a boy from a, a council estate, mm. and you also mentioned the fact you, you feel you've had a chip on your shoulder against mm. the Blazers. Mm. Looking back on that, is that situation an advantage for you? Because it doesn't allow you any room for comfort and yeah. discomfort death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the day you don't get up every morning thinking, I want to change the world, is a bad day. The day you actually change the world might be a worse day. But you have to start off, as I do every day, as I approach my office, my heartbeat goes up. I'm excited. 
I'm excited with the opportunity that exists. I'm excited to bring a slightly different version of certain sports. I'm excited to change things. And I've got a little, as you get a little bit richer, I've got an impish side about that I quite like to beat up people mentally, not necessarily physically. I'm too old for that, but I like to be able to do things better than anybody else. Inevitably, the easy targets are the Blazers. And these are the people that, as I grew up, created from where I came from too many barriers to entry. The only barrier to entry should be ability. Now, I believe in sport for all. I think sport is something that unites the nation and is beneficial to everyone. And the sadness for me is, on a political note, the, the lack of facilities for people, in, especially in inner London areas, which causes problems, whether it's knife crime or drugs or whatever, because kids need to be occupied. Sport occupies minds. It thrills me to think that a little fat kid from a council estate somewhere, which is probably what I was once, can go up to his bedroom with a dartboard, spend no money, and get good. Now, in the same way as we used to play cricket up against a lamppost, and some of us got good. Football, whatever. Boxing. These are sports that come from areas where there are a lot more people than there are living in big houses. And I'm always saying to broadcasters, don't be led by the guy with the big house who's got a council, you know, who's got a satellite dish. He's one. Go around the back streets of council estates and look at the range of, you know, maybe cable now, but more satellite dishes in my days. These are your real customers. There's been a move, a knowledgeable move against blue collar sports, especially in America, for years and years. They look down their nose at, there's a snobbish value why else do we see golf tournaments getting 40,000 audience, 50,000 audience, and getting millions of pounds of sponsorship? So that's prevalent right through the whole, well, where I come from is we want to give value for money, and yeah, we, we want to get paid for it, and one way or another, we will. So for me, the chip on my shoulder was having nothing and watching people that had a lot, and I, I wanted it to be quite brutal I wanted to be wealthy I wanted to be successful I couldn't find a way of doing it other than working much harder than anybody else and being a little bit smarter than most other people and then I needed a little bit of luck which I got and, and then it was from it got easier and easier today it's very easy because people listen to me because they realise I don't talk a load of rubbish and I do have an idea of what they should be doing with their company whether they're a sponsor or what they should be doing with their TV company to attract an audience. And the pay-per-view model gives me a chance to say, I told you so. Look, we're all making loads of money. I told you this would work, and I think I'm going to get it with the zone as well. Because the zone, I think, is a concept that meets the requirements of today's millennial customer. You know, you can buy it or not. You don't locked into a long-term contract. You can watch it when you want to watch it on whatever apparatus you want to watch on, whether it's mobile, laptop, smart TV. The days of sitting with mum and dad on a settee watching sport are gone. We don't do it as a family. The kids are upstairs on their Xbox anyway. So we must keep sport alive, and so therefore we've got to give them a product that, that, does, that there are no barriers to their entry, in the same way as the sport must have barriers to individual entry. So digital exploitation in that market to me, is a global exploitation that can work everywhere. 
And I believe that in the next five years, a company like DAZN, with the backing and the investment, and it won't be my money going in, I'll be servicing them, as I am in Japan, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Canada, Italy, soon to be North America. I will never make the money that the owners of DAZN will make, but I don't need that anyway to live my life. My life is built around 600 and something event days that I care about. And that gives me much more satisfaction than another 100 million in the bank. Because I wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. I only go fishing. Cost me about two quid for some maggots and that's it. And I'm made up. Or, you know. But the way the world has moved, social media will promote the concept like design better than anything else. Because it's straight target to target. It's one on one. The fact that there's no barriers in terms of I can't afford a subscription to Sky in the UK or I can't afford to watch pay-per-view at 90-odd dollars in the USA opens the door where those people perhaps have not seen the writing on the wall and they've got a bit lazy in their own advancement of their own operation. They won't be lazy for long because they're smart people, but we've seen ESPN do ESPN+. Plus. Now, they've made one big mistake on ESPN+, Plus, which they will rectify one day, but they've had no choice at the moment where their cable operators have virtually insisted, I believe, that you only offer ESPN+, Plus to existing ESPN subscribers. That's still a huge number of people, but it's declining. And it's declining because people don't want to spend so much money on the traditional way of watching television. And that decline will accelerate over the next five years. And I believe that that decline will see an increase in ESPN Plus subscribers, and it will actually enhance the value of a design operation that's got enough clout behind it to acquire the level of top quality sport that that audience wants to watch. Hence, they're moving to boxing with Eddie in the USA. If you were in charge of a Sky or a BT or, a, or a, an ESPN or HBO in America, what would you be doing now? Yeah. Because, because there's a challenge to, to, to TV sports, which is okay. what you're talking about. I think I'd accept that challenge is real. And I think, by the way, these, these guys are smarter than me that we're talking about. So I'm sure whatever I say to you has already either been discussed, is being discussed, or has been thrown away as a bad idea. In my rural brain, I would be sitting down with the Amazons and the Facebooks and working out a global strategy of combinations of traditional broadcast, digital broadcast, different monetizations. I would be acquiring content on a global scale. I mean, Amazon could walk into Richard Scudamore's office in two years' time and say, here's a check for 10 billion. We want our own Premier League for the world. One customer, guaranteed. 20% increase, whereas everyone else is talking Premier League football, down 5%. And they would be in a dominant position in sport. Now, the question is, is sport worth that amount of money? That's where the accounting in you comes in. Now, we know that Netflix has got 125 million subscribers and will have over 200 million within three years. That's a huge base. And the spin-off values of that data make it 
the gorilla in the room. Sport is not as big as entertainment. You have to take that into account. Sport is not as big as music. Interesting that Len Blavotnik has got the majority shareholder in DAZN. He's also a massive shareholder in Spotify. So, and he also owns Warner Music. So this guy's a serious player and has a serious brain. Probably much better than mine. Mine's more on common sense than anything else. Theirs is on statistics and analytics. Common sense tells me I want to do deals with people that are going to be the future. But I don't want to ignore what I've learned from the past, nor do I want to lose any audience. So for my business, I want to appeal to every sector, not just the millennials. I appreciate the fact that they are the future, but at the same time, they are not necessarily loyal as your traditionalists are loyal. So in any business, you start off looking after your core business because that's what pays the bills and you invest in the future of where you think your business is going to be. And inevitably for any broadcaster today, that will tie into some digital operation. Obviously, you're extremely aware and fully researched on all sorts of markets, be they DAZN, Netflix, TV. What factors do you look at? What um, we, we talked about the factors in a particular deal, but where do you look for trends? Where do you where are you looking? Are you looking at, at television? Are you looking at kids, your own grandkids? Or no, I never look at my own. I mean, because we're a global business, so I look at statistics of participation as a big precursor to getting involved, so, and, and and also I take into account that every market is different. What works in Germany doesn't necessarily work in the UK. What works in the States doesn't necessarily work in India. So whether you've got Kabaddi knocking them over in India and you've got handball in Germany, you've got speed skating in Holland, these are not necessarily transferred or translate to other markets. You look at niche followers. I, I look at niche because I can't afford to buy Super Bowl. I can't afford to buy a Ryder Cup. I'm gutted I didn't invent 2020 cricket. It's got my hand right all over it. I missed that one. By, by the way, you, I want you to invest in Essex cricket. And I'm a big oh, Essex yeah, cricket yeah, club yeah, fan. Yeah. This, this is where I want you, by the yeah, yeah. well, way. I, that, I that need is, to get that in. I, I, I played there a few times myself, and of course, I have my own cricket ground in Essex, which is. And they, they keep asking to play on it, and I say no, because it's my little patch. And. <laughs> And it's not used to good cricket, it's used to village cricket. No, what, what, what you look at is that those fundamentals of what's, it's so difficult to say, what's you know, people say, what's the next sport? Well, the answer is there is no next sport. I mean, e-gaming might be the exception, by the way, because that's new. Well, you look at sports that have been underdeveloped. That it's have, a reinvention, have, isn't it, in a way? That have ignored the fact that there's a volume following somewhere. And then you acquire it to some manner or form. You must have control. I mean, my biggest problem with rugby league is, whilst I quite like it, I can't own it. I'm not there to do a job. I'm not a chief executive. I'm not a chairman. When I went into snooker, I bought it. When I went to darts, I bought it. Events I can own because I own the IP of that event. So places like rugby, speedway, greyhounds, all these things need help, but... Again, sometimes you can't help them. Sometimes they're beyond saving. Sometimes they're dipping away and the perception of the sport has changed. Perception is everything. The king has no clothes. Again, everything is overlapped with social media, exploitation, commercialization. 
But if you can convince everyone that this is the second coming, you, you'll do well. And, and, and that's a tough sell, you know. I mean, again, come back to Fishermania. When I sold Fishermania to my friend David Hill from Fox, man that started Packer in Australia and started Sky in the UK, he's mad as me. And he said, let's do it. And everyone said, this is, this is a one-year wonder, never, ever happened. It was 25 years on Saturday. And is it big? No. Does it matter to a certain core market? Yes. It and that's niche, isn't it? And that's that's niche. niche. But when you, if you was having a world war, football, Champions League, Europa, Europa League, FA Cup, these are the cities. So you dominate cities by those massive events. But there's an awful lot of villages and hamlets out there. And you don't dominate unless you own them as well. So my job is to dominate the villages and the hamlets and to grow them into towns and hopefully one day cities. So a sport like dance, which wasn't really on people's radar 12 or 13 years ago, today has the second highest rating on Sky behind Premiership football. It bashes up everything else. And it's ordinary people with extraordinary ability being watched by ordinary people that can associate with those characters because they look like the bloke around the corner. And by the way, they're having a couple of pints and they're having a great night out and it's not costing them a fortune. And they've been entertained and they've got something to talk about when they go to work on the following day. Mission accomplished. I've got two more questions. First one, we talked about the chip on the shoulder but do you consider yourself an outsider? Because you've always been independent. Yeah. Good question. I don't... I mean, I think you start off as an outsider. It's a bit like George Orwell in 1984, isn't it? You know, the pigs take over the farm and it end up the pigs become the farmers. Animal farm, not 1984. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Animal farm. <laughs> animal farm, forgive me. It, it's a bit like that because you start off being the revolutionary and you end up being establishment and it's a difficult act to follow and it's difficult to create a feeling of I'm still the revolutionary so for that you have to continually innovate the problems with most sports and the Blazers in particular is there's no question they love their sport they're just not very good in today's marketplace they don't have the ability so the way around it, in my mind, is to cover myself with a group of tremendously articulate, creative people that can tell me, Baza, you're getting old. People want to see this. And 99 times out of 100, they're right. So therefore, for one failure out of 100, I'll back them 100%. Once you get to a certain level, it depends whether you're of the personality that you settle for anything. That's where it all starts to go wrong. So, whereas everyone says, for example, in snooker, wow, you know, seven years ago, it was 3.5 million prize money, it's 14 or 15 million, what a job. My attitude is we're climbing a mountain and the day you'd wake up and every morning say, that's a job done, is the day you might as well get out. So for my every day, I'm pushing. Every inch, I'm pushing. Every pound, I'm pushing. 
I want to see bigger profits. I want to see more prize money. I want to see more television. I want to see bigger ratings. I want to see more exposure. Now, to achieve that, I need the right group of people around me, and I'm blessed to have them. And that's why we're pretty well unstoppable, because they've got the creativity and the ability to do what my relentless approach wants, which is I never settle. There's always another pound. Never ever forget that it all revolves around money. Players prize money or my profits, it doesn't make any difference. If there's another pound and I walk past it on the street without picking it up, I would hate myself. <laughs> you for, last question. You've talked about the fact you're never going to retire, you're going to do this till, mm. till the, the day you're not here any, anymore. But the, the obvious final question, what would you like your legacy to be? Legacy's overrated because you're dead. What does it matter? But you want an impact on the sport. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, but but there's impact. money and then there's meaning. I think the most important thing is, and I spend 20% of my time on legacy, uh, a good bit of it because I hate inheritance tax and I want to make sure that I don't pay it. But I'm not leaving the country because I love this country. The biggest legacy I leave is the people I leave behind that have been influenced by me and brought their own strength to the operation and are ready to take the final stage for them and grow the same principle behind it is they've got to leave a legacy as well. So I haven't spent 40 years of my life for this business to stop when I go and I think I've got the right teams in place to continue to promote the sports we love and I would expect them to create a team after them. Interesting enough, lots of people have tried to buy Matram Sport over the years and we are we have the same shareholding now that we had in 1982 when the company was first formed and that won't change in my lifetime there'll be no IPO there'll be no flotation there'll be no sale because that's not what we started to get involved in sport for uh, we've been blessed that we have a good standard of living and that's enough the last particular people came to try and buy us was a Chinese company, one of the major Chinese companies that identified the fact that we have ownership, which is so key. Uh, and they presented a, a huge amount of money beyond my comprehension, which I took great pleasure in telling them that they wasted their airline ticket because this company is not for sale. At which stage my son leaned forward and said, but the money dies, then ring me. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what the future may hold. Barry Hearn, thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> good ending, thank you very much. That was excellent. I'll try to give you a good exit. Please follow at Sport Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. 